Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we have a fun one for you. Here, John Ahern and Paul Buckley will be giving us a Christmas bash, where they critique a few Christmas hymns and carols that we find troublesome. As always, we do invite you to check out those links in the show notes, especially check out our YouTube channel where we are right now in the midst of an ongoing series walking through the book of Revelation with Peter Lightheart. We also put out psalm chant videos and other shorter series as we go through the church calendar together. We really hope that you enjoy this episode and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here are Paul Buckley and John Ahern doing what may become a Theopolis tradition and giving us a Christmas bash. Welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. We are doing another episode with Paul Buckley and John Ahern on Christmas music. To introduce these guys again, John Ahern is a graduate student pursuing his PhD in musicology from Princeton. Paul Buckley is a director of worship and also contributed to our recently released Theopolis Liturgy and Psalter. He wrote an introduction to chanting as well as setting many of those psalms for us. In this episode, we thought it'd be fun to talk about Christmas carols and hymns that aren't particularly excellent. You may have found yourself in a church service at some point in your life singing an Advent or a Christmas hymn and kind of asking the question to yourself or to your spouse, uh, is this heresy? Does this fit with the incarnation of the Son of God? Does this Is this appropriate for the season? So we thought it'd be fun to address that 800-pound gorilla in the room and have a Christmas bash where we bash Christmas carols and hymns. But before we jump into that, we thought we'd discuss or ask the question, why do we put up with bad Christmas hymns and carols? Paul, do you have any any thoughts on that? I do. First, let me say that I'm I'm very grateful for a mother who gave me the golden book of Christmas carols when I was about eight years old. And I used to spend hours at the piano early on in my piano lesson time playing through and singing through those carols in fact i because i did it at all times of year i probably got those carols memorized more from that than than actually from singing them in in church services Mm -hmm. and i'm grateful for it and that book included some of the greats and some of the not so greats so i have a strong attachment to it simply to that book simply because my mother gave it to me. And I think something like that is going on on a more general level with many of us with Christmas music, that we have very strong sentimental attachments to it. And so I will will choose one carol whose popularity I think is far beyond its actual merits, and and that would be Silent Night. I I saw an article the other day. It's actually a year-old article, but a a survey of of Brits had found that Silent Night is, I think, the second most popular carol in the UK. Why is that? The text is not all that great. It's a lovely lullaby tune, but I think people have a very strong association with the season. They may remember singing it next to their grandmother on Christmas Eve while lighting candles, and there are all of these emotional attach, emotional um, resonances that it has that actually have nothing to do with 
the text of the song. I think that that music is yeah, as Paul said, there's there's a lot to uh, the Christmas season that just um, has to do with the nostalgia. I, I mean, I've heard people describe Christmas music, their interaction with it, it's like a drug to them, and I, I totally get that. It, it's it, uh, or even the the word Pavlovic, I think, describes what I. I think of and I think what other people have. I noticed even, for instance, oftentimes when like pop singers or art, various different commercial popular artists produce some album of Christmas music, the very first thing you'll hear in a track is just like sleigh bells, you know, ching, ching, ching. you know, they hit the sleigh bells three times and it's like Pavlovic response. We all are just like in a Christmas mood magically it's okay. to the degree where you can, you can, all you need to do in order to, create a Christmas ad or Christmas commercial for a brand is to just begin the commercial with three rings of the sleigh bell and suddenly we're in a Christmas booth. Why is that? Well, Christmas, it's, it's, a, it's a special season. It seems to reverse the clock a little bit on uh, the disenchantment that, that uh, characterizes modernity. And we, we feel like we're back in an older uh, enchanted magical world. And, uh, uh, for you know, I mean, obviously, for better or worse, some of these things are are uh, commercialized over the top and so forth. But I think those are powerful emotions. That music is really key to tapping into those emotions. And I think that that occasionally those uh, the music combined with the sentimental association can uh, manipulate us or trick us into liking things that probably, in our better judgment, we wouldn't like. Paul was asking me earlier what my um, guilty pleasure Christmas carols are. We are we all have those, you know, we all have the Christmas carols that we kind of wish we didn't like, but we do. I think that's um, that's in many ways a, a good tribute to the the incredible power of, of this particular holiday. Yeah, I, and I want to say that in spite of those dangers, the danger of wallowing in nostalgia and, and sentimentality and kitsch, that there is actually something deeply right about this, that we have these kinds of responses to music, that th this is not yes. simply a result of the fall, but God has so constituted us to be very attached to music. And the pastoral moral of the story here, at least one of them, I think, is let's, let's be careful that we're getting, giving people good things, the best things to get attached to. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree more. So with that, what would you say, uh, John, are some of your guilty pleasures? Oh gosh, a guilty pleasure. I thought we were going to bash. Uh, guilty pleasures. I, I really like, uh, I've always liked Shepherd's Pipe Carol by John Rutter. I, I mean, I don't know. Some people might consider that not a guilt. Maybe that's a good thing to like. But, um, you know, that little flute line at the very beginning just puts me in the Christmassy mood, you know, and the, and the words are kind of cheesy and the jazzy harmonies are a little bit, uh, I don't know, basic, as the kids would say these days. But, uh, you know, it all just perfectly hits me right in the center of my heart. And you, you got me. I'm ready to open presents and so forth. Right. What about you, Paul? Well, again, I, I don't know whether this is really um, a guilty pleasure entirely, but I do dearly love Christina Rossetti's poem in the bleak midwinter, especially as it was set to music by Gustav Holst. The guilty part it is because I don't think there's any question that there are um, uh, parts of the the carol that veer into sentimentality. There's the verse that um, says only his mother worshipped 
the beloved with a kiss. And some people, I, I know that it's um, uh, there's a there's a good Lutheran satire video about um, English Christmas carols versus German Lutheran carols, and fun is poked at the English for all these hymns that talk about um, meteorological phenomena um, like snow and uh, and wind. Well, that's the entirety of the first verse of In the Bleak Midwinter. Frosty wind made moan. Earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone. Um, um, but I, I want to suggest that um, at least in that carol, Rossetti knows what she's doing, and it isn't just a weather report for the whole first verse, um, especially if we remember that human beings are made of earth. Earth stood hard as iron. This is a commentary on the state of humanity before the rising of the sun of righteousness, the winter of humanity. So um, it's a little bit sentimental, but I, I do love that carol. So yeah, Paul, let's start us off. What's your first bash? Well, I'm going to bash, to some extent, O Holy Night, which in the the survey that I mentioned in the UK, O Holy Night was the uh, the top. That was in the number one slot, favorite Christmas carol in the UK. And let me offer my disclaimers first. My goodness, this was, um, as for so many people, not just in the UK, this was my mother's favorite carol. My wife is not here. Uh, it's her favorite carol. And here I am uh, getting ready to, uh, to bash it. For those who don't know, the, the original of O Holy Night was written in French. And really, my quarrel is, is less with the French original than with, than with the English translation, which in many lines is not a translation and not even a paraphrase, but the content has been changed considerably. And it's worth perhaps bearing in mind that the English version we all know was done by a Unitarian so in the in the English, and this is the thing that bothers me most in um, the first verse of, of the English O Holy Night. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. So far, so good. Till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. And I have often thought when listening to it, and I, I have to, I don't know if John will agree with me. I, musically, um, you know, I, I do... I do love the thing, but every time I hear those words and the soul felt its worth, I think surely we can get closer to home than that. Now, if I'm being very generous with plenty of Yuletide spirit, um, I can listen to that line and say something like what Rodney Stark says in uh, one of his books on the rise, uh, the rise of Christianity, that the Christian movement in the early centuries gave human beings their humanity back. And uh, there's something profoundly right about that. But when you compare the French original, let me just give you um, a bit uh, of the, the French original in translation. Midnight, Christians, is the solemn hour when God as man descended to us to erase the stain of original sin and to end the wrath of his father. The entire world thrills with hope. 
on this night that gives it a savior. The English translation of the refrain then, fall on your knees, is pretty close to the original, people kneel down. The Unitarian version says, um, hear the angels' voices, but the French says, await your deliverance. Noel, Noel, here is the Redeemer. So I, I think that the French original is far better than the blander English version. I do think that this is a case where people have largely been captivated by the music with that undulating uh, yes. split accompaniment. But I think we have to get closer to home than the soul feeling it's worth. I also, that that one is always tricky for me because I think like maybe all of us, I am always just concentrating on the, are they going to make it to the A flat question? <laughs> um, and you don't have to know it's an A flat, but we all know that at the end of the second verse, they're going to try to go up to that high note. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, and the whole time you're just thinking to yourself, are they going to make it? Are they going to make it? And if they don't make it, of course, everybody's a little bit, you know, filled with a sense of what's that word for uh, when you feel somebody else's shame. But but then also, I think that if they do make it, that's even worse because if oftentimes this is sung by a soloist and it becomes a kind of opera in church sort of moment. And, and I really despise that. I, I have a visceral dislike of, of these kinds of soloistic displays of virtuosity. I mean, yeah. I say that as a pipe organist. I guess you do that all the time on the pipe organ. But but for some reason, the the kind of dramaturgy of it and the oftentimes accompanied by the facial expressions and so forth. Wow, Paul, you chose a really good one to bash. You're getting my blood pumping on, on this. <laughs> There's a version of Oh Holy Night you can find on YouTube by a North Texas band. It's one of my favorite versions, and it's Oh Holy Night, Cha-Cha-Cha. That sounds great. The band says, uh, no disrespect intended. It just makes a great cha-cha. It's a brave combo, so you can look that up. John, let's hear from you. Well, uh, let's see. I can I can choose the the music bash or the text bash. I guess I'll go with the the music bash. I, I have nothing against the text of this, and thankfully, actually, there is an even better tune that you can sing it to. But oh, a little town of Bethlehem, as most Americans tend to sing, "Oh, little town of Bethlehem." You know th that tune in particular really uh, rubs me the wrong way for a couple reasons. Number one, the, the tune itself is is something that is, it's steeped in a 19th century musical idiom. Uh, oh, no. And, and not that that's objectively wrong. Uh, we, we've joked a couple times before on this podcast about the 19th century. But there, there's a chromaticism to it, I think, that automatically makes it a little bit difficult to sing. Like if, I, if we sing an a cappella version of A Little Town of Bethlehem, and we have to navigate all of these half steps and things. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. That, that's actually, you know, I'm not a great singer, but I have trouble making that sound good in tune. It's one of those things that it's, it's designed to be sung, you know, maybe with accompaniment, with a piano, and maybe it's even designed to be sung by professionals and not really by a congregation. But the tune is only this, the beginning of the problems with, with the whole carol as it is. It's one of those carols that I often use when I'm trying to describe to people the difference between polyphony and chords. And so if you have four people right. singing four different lines, four different melodies, 
how do we tell whether those lines are really truly melodies or is it just one person on top singing a melody and three other people singing boring chordal harmonies? Um, and I will use a little town of Bethlehem as the example of what it sounds like to sing boring chordal harmonies instead of real melodies. Because if, if you look at the baseline of a little town of Bethlehem, this is how it goes. Oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie, which is just demeaning as a base to have to sing that. It's uh, it, all you are is just this proletarian functional machine that's that's mm. churning out uh, notes so that the soprano can have their virtuosic display of decadent 19th century chromaticism. Uh, and all the other parts, I think, also have these moments where they're just there. They're just honking on their little note. Um, that's basically amounting to strumming the strings on the guitar in order to provide some, you know, background accompaniment to the main action of the of the hymn, which is the the melody. Um, why do I get so upset about that? Because I think that 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 actually really matters. I think that when you're doing something in the context of Christian worship, everyone should be having um, a melody that they can really sing, that they can that really Im, you know embodies their voice both in the Bible and in a lot of Western thought, when you sing, when, when you use your voice, you're, it is sort of an expression of who you are. It's an offering of everything about you. That should be something that you can, you can really put yourself behind. It should be a melody that, that has a, a sense of, of melodic identity beyond uh, this mere functional honking out of, of notes for other, for other melodic reasons. So uh, th that's sort of my... Um, Slightly random, but I think nonetheless important bash of, of the carol. Now, the good news is that there's a gorgeous English carol that, that has beautiful writing of all four parts um, that they oftentimes use in, in England. Uh, I think it goes, Oh, little town of Bethlehem. I mean, you might have heard that on, on some of your Christmas albums. I think that's a far superior tune. It's a far superior setting of it harmonically. And if you really like the, the text of A Little Town of Bethlehem, it's, you know, it's a, it's a decent text, I think. You can salvage it. You can sing it to something that doesn't make you uh, feel bad about yourself if you're a bass. <laughs> John, that harmonization that you're talking about of that English folk melody, I believe, is by Ray Fawn Williams, no? Right. Yes. It's not a coincidence because uh, it's a phenomenal harmonization, yeah. and he's, he's one of the best. All right. Consider it bashed. So, John, that was your musical bash. Do you have any textual bashing to do? Is there Are there any texts that you find troublesome or that should not be sung? Or, uh, so, so many. No, actually, the one, I, the one that comes to mind, I think, is It Came Upon in Midnight Clear. And this one, I think, part of it is just the, the poetry of it. I, I really do think that we occasionally with hymns and especially with Christmas carols, we can sometimes... Uh, let our poetic standards off the hook a little bit because as we have mentioned, there's a lot of nostalgia involved. Um, but also just, I think that sometimes when you have music and text working together, uh, one of them has to compromise a little bit. Um, in this case, the text has compromised too much. It's uh, every noun seems to need a, an adjective to describe it. And some of these adjectives are a little on the, on the painful side. I, I, first of all, there's, there's a lot of gold. There's an awful lot of gold. It reminds me of those images of the inside of Trump's old mansions where everything is, is gold. The harps of gold, uh, the, the golden hours, the age of gold that's coming around. A little too much of that, I think, uh, for, for my particular tastes. 
You may think that this is trivial. <laughs> I don't think it's trivial at all. Uh, you know, they aren't just profits. They're profit bards. Uh, they aren't just the, um, the years there, the ever circling years. It's not just a strain. It's an angel strain. You know, you can keep going with these sorts of um, fake. It's almost a little bit like uh, he had a line of whatever verse this is. You know, he had a line of iambic pentameter or whatever, and he needed another foot filled out of that line. So he, so he found a little banal adjective to fit in that that space, and, and he put it in there. Um, Paul pointed this out to me uh, a while ago, and maybe he can talk about this a little bit. Uh, but there's there's some interesting theology going on in that verse about, for lo, the days are hastening on by prophet bards foretold when the ever-circling years come round the age of gold. It, it has a kind of pretense of a good Theopolitan post-millennialism. But, but you know, if we really are talking about a cycle of years in which, yes, the golden age is coming back around. Uh, sure, we have some times of war like the 19th century, but we're going to come back around to a good golden age. That's very non-Christian. That's that's not a that's not a good deal at all. I think that 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 verse needs a rewrite. Yes, um, this, like the English version of "O Holy Night," is another carol by a Unitarian. And uh, N.T. Wright, in a in a Christmas Eve sermon that you can find online, titled "Emperors and Angels," says that that very verse you're talking about with the lines, uh, with the ever-circling years comes round the age of gold, is in fact an ancient pagan superstition. And Wright offers a rewrite on that verse, for lo, the days are hastening on by prophets seen of old, when by the Spirit's mighty power arrives the time foretold. And then the remainder, uh, remainder of the verse is the same. Yeah, that, that rewrite, um, it, that definitely, I think it's, number one, it's better poetry. We've got a little less of the gold. I think it was you, Paul, who has this old joke about if a hymn has one line end with old, you can be pretty sure that the next line is going to end with gold or, you know, foretold or one of these things. It's always it's always a bit frustrating. And I, I yes, I appreciate sometimes breaking out of those molds. And, and anyways, yes, Wright obviously has a bit better um, eschatological theology in, in that verse. Um, I think something to take from this, and, and here's a point of application for those who are responsible for the church's worship um, or simply responsible for singing at home around the piano, that it really is worth, especially in the Internet age, searching online for rewritten carols, tweaked carols, uh, because sometimes there are marked improvements to be found. Or if you have access to them, to look in lots of hymnals. Sometimes the rewrites are bad and, and go in a, in a wrong direction, but sometimes they can be helpful. And um, I, to, to give one example, I'll go back to Silent Night since I was talking about it um, at the beginning. When I came to the church where I'm serving now here in Florida, I inherited a Christmas Eve service that ends up with Silent Night in darkness as candles are lit. I and mean, plenty of churches do that sort of thing. And certainly I wasn't going to be the Grinch who stole that. And I mean, the tradition remains in, in place to this day and tampered with it. But um, I did find a verse for Silent Night 
in a different translation, or maybe it's not a translation. Maybe it's just a com complete um, overhaul and um, that says, Silent night, holy night, God's dear son brings us light, saving us from death's dark thrall, giving life and love to all, Christ the light of the world, Christ the light of the world. That um, is probably not going to go down as, as the greatest English verse ever, but I think it's something that gave a little, gives a little bit of weight to the song in comparison with the other verses. But it, it is worth looking around at other hymnals, the Oxford Book of Carols, which we mentioned in a previous conversation, and um, at a, a website like hymnary.org, where you can find lots of different versions of these. That's a, that's a really good point. I mean, the good news is if, if you're annoyed at what picky, snobby people Paul and I are, there, there's always ways to salvage these carols in a way. Um, and, you know, you can, you can outsource a little bit and, and figure out some of these other sources. I would, I would echo a lot of the stuff, the Oxford Book of Carols, a lot of the stuff that Cambridge puts out of their, their Christmas carols, Cambridge University Press and so forth. Uh, really, really good stuff that you can find and stuff that you can find online as well. It seems that if we were in, in church services, having a healthy mix of singing the Psalms as Theopolis is, uh, that's one of our main emphases. Um, but if you're singing the Psalms and singing uh, the best Christmas carols that we have, that you kind of can really uphold the whole mystery and paradox that is the incarnation. I've, I've been reading Matthew with my wife in the morning, and I was just saying to her, actually this morning, um, just how remarkable it is that you have right around Jesus's birth, you have all of these babies being slaughtered and then you have them fleeing and you have them coming back and you have them traveling and these very human things that are really difficult and hard. But also, of course, there was some sentiment, sentimentality from Mary's standpoint that she's got this new baby and there's some excitement there. And uh, of course, Jesus comes to destroy his enemies, but he also comes as a baby. And so <laughs> it Right. It seems that if we were chanting and singing the psalms and singing the best carols that we have, that you kind of get both the sweetness of Jesus' birth and uh, the mission that he comes to save his people and destroy his enemies and remake the world. Absolutely. Yeah, there's, there is a place for a little bit of sentiment in this particular holiday. I mean, if you've ever had a baby, you know you, you are a ridiculous uh, human being when you're around a baby because you're just you become uh, a sentimental creature and no matter how cynical you are so yeah there is absolutely that place but yet the best Christmas carols I think can have that and yet in the background you can also have things like Herod's slaughter of the innocents you know those two things can coexist in the same kind of musical world uh, in the best Christmas carols but by the way I came across just this morning yet another version of Silent Night that has the babe Jesus laughing. <laughs> uh, and that that's a first for me. I don't think I've seen another carol. I've seen no crying he makes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but not one that refers to the laughter of Jesus. Brian, I, um, of course, agree with what you're saying about the Psalms. And I was going to make the point that if we, if we really want to learn how to sing about this event, we could not do better than to go to Luke 1 and 2 um, mm -hmm. to learn from the lips of Zechariah and 
Mary in, in Luke 1 and from Simeon and the angels in Luke 2, how best to sing about this. And the Magnificat, Mary's song, shows her to be a young woman who is obviously steeped in the worship of Israel, who yes. knows her psalms and can come up with an original composition that um, echoes and, and forwards the psalms. And her Christmas carol, if you want to think of the Magnificat that way, talks about the casting down of the mighty from their thrones and uh, the rich being sent away empty and so forth. And um, we need more carols that talk like that. Simeon's song, as short as it is, shows him too to be someone who is steeped in the Psalms and in the prophecies of Isaiah. And if we want to write good carols, if we want to rewrite some lesser carols, that's where I think we need to spend our time. Let's sing the Psalms. Let's learn by heart the canticles in Luke 1 and 2. And who knows what we might be able to produce after doing that for a generation or two. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.